I would argue that a journey story is one of the oldest genres of storytelling in the human experience. The Stone Age ancestors who I'm following, the hunter-gatherers who dispersed out of Africa, geography for them was vital to their survival. You had to know where you were in the context of your geography in order to know how to live. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. You just heard author and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Paul Salapek touch on the sacredness of geography and the human experience. Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigates the story behind Salapek's epic 21,000-mile odyssey to retrace humanity's first steps as the former war correspondent walks the world. Hi, Paul, and welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Uh, it's nice to be with you today, Mariana. In 2013, you started a journey in what you call slow journalism, retracing the footsteps of our migrating ancestors from Africa across Middle East and Asia down through North, Central and South America. You call that walk out of Eden project. Along the way, as a journalist, you're documenting and sharing your experiences. Before we get going, I wanna know where you are right now. Today, I'm in Shanghai in China, uh, which is the staging point for uh, what will be a 6,000 kilometer walk through China. Well, I mentioned that you call this slow journalism. What would you say the benefits of this slowness um, are? And should everyone take note? Yes. If you think about it, um, a lot of the best things in life are slow. And so the, the idea of, of slowing down to, to find quality and meaning um, is not new. And as a foreign correspondent who spent a good deal of my career jetting around, um, I was based in Africa for many years, but covered the world. Um, I just decided that it was time to, to slow my methodology around as a journalist. And in doing so, gather not just information, right, which is what you know, a big part of my job is, but actually find meaning, connecting the dots of information, connecting the data, if you will, to find the patterns and, and deeper meanings. And I think that is important today, as we're all overwhelmed with information pouring from these supercomputers that are in our pockets, right? So slow down, um, find hidden connections that are, are deeper and, and maybe even more meaningful than the data points of journalism, such as headlines, the gazillion headlines of, of the day that are assaulting us. And we, we, none of us can process them, there are too many. Um, so while everybody else is, is speeding up, I thought I'd, I'd walk the other direction and slow down. This type of sort of uh, quest for meaning, you call it a storytelling odyssey. And in a way it is a classic quest for meaning. Uh, not unlike Odysseus, for example, or Buddha. Um, I guess you've already given us some insight, but what are you really looking for in this project? Well, again, let, let's think about, let's go back in time and think about the original storytellers moved about on foot, whether they were Western bards, you know, wandering from, from village to village in, in ancient Greece or West African griots, um, or in the Islamic world, uh, Rahalas, travelers who were, who were moving about on quests for knowledge. The Aravidin Walk Project is a, is a combination of that ancient tradition of, of moving through the world on foot, um, being thoughtful, 
about gathering information, gathering impressions, being equally thoughtful about sharing them, um, marrying that um, sort of antique way of communicating with the highest technology available to share the storytelling globally. So um, I, you know, I, I use uh, mobile phones. I have to remind readers sometimes that I'm not kind of walking across the earth wearing bearskins and, and carrying flint knives. Um, I'm following pathways of ancient peoples. And, and the, the science of my project is to, to follow the ancient dispersal routes of early Homo sapiens out of Africa uh, and retrace those pathways. And what am I looking for? Um, I'm looking for trails of authenticity and connectivity among human beings today. Trails of, 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 of knowledge and, and again, meaning to know how we're connected in the early 21st century. I heard you say, I related to this topic, I have walked through all of these headlines. I have walked through all of these stories. What has it been like learning about and experiencing these among people and cultures very different from your own? It's been humbling. It, meeting somebody who has a different perspective gives our life a solid edge that we can spark off of them. We can, we can, you know, we can exchange beliefs. We can exchange experiences and, and uh, see our world and ourselves in a little bit different way. Now imagine that scenario, that kind of personal experience of, of meeting people unlike yourself, not just at these discrete events, but every single day, every single hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. It is deeply enriching. It is deeply challenging. Um, uh, it's part of the affirmation that, that keeps me walking, frankly. There, there are a lot of difficulties and challenges with walking through the world uh, in this day and age. Physical challenges, logistical challenges, topographical challenges, political challenges. But it's the notion that I'm meeting somebody new who's unlike myself just around the next bend or over the next hill over and over again that keeps me going. May I ask you a, a, just sort of a practical question? How do you communicate with these people? Do you have translators who walk with you? I know you have walking partners, but are they also translators? Yeah, it's a really, that's a really vital question because you can imagine what the biggest filter is in this kind of a project, in this kind of a journey or experience. It is language. And if you don't inhabit the language uh, that's being spoken, you're missing out on so much, right? And you're looking through a keyhole. And I'm very sometimes painfully aware of that. The, the advantage of slowing down and walking through countries and, and walking through um, languages is that I'm in, I'm in those languages long enough to, to pick up at least a survival or rudimentary or elementary understanding of them. I have to. Um, so I'm not like jetting to a new country for three or four days to capture a story and then return to the airport in a rent a car and then fly out and write a story. I'm walking through um, uh, Arabic, right? for well over a year. I'm walking through Russian, the de facto common language of Central Asia for more than two years. Um, right now I'll be walking through Mandarin 
in mainland China for 18 months. So that's one thing. I, I have the time and the incentive because I'm meeting people who speak only their own language again and again every day to learn something of the language, to build that, that very vital bridge. But as you mentioned, I always walk with people as well. I call them walking partners. They're not guides. They're not logisticians. They're not translators. They're not navigators. They're all of those things together, plus they're fellow storytellers. And so they help me uh, bridge that communication gap. Esri's founder, Jack Dangerman, who you know, talks of geography as the science of our world. There are different types of geographies, you know, physical geography, environmental, economic, and they're all components of our human experience. How does geography inform and explain what happens to us in your experience walking for tens of thousands of miles? And would you say that geography is destiny? I would argue that a journey story is one of the oldest genres of storytelling in the human experience. The Stone Age ancestors who I'm following, the hunter-gatherers who dispersed out of Africa, geography for them was vital to their survival. You had to know where you were in the context of your geography in order to know how to live. And I think we've sort of lost that uh, a bit today because we've, we've grown comfortable in these zones of mapped out geographies. Um, we've become very adept at micro geographies since we've settled down as a species, inventing agriculture no longer moving nomadically uh, as hunter gathers through a landscape. So in some ways in the 21st century with all this amazing technology to help us know where we are, um, we've actually become a bit dulled by it and lulled by it um, because we're not using our internal compasses in our internal maps that we're carrying around in our bodies, the physicality of our bodies and also our minds to know where we are in context, right? Not just other people, we've been talking about other people and that's really my map. You know, I'm walking from person to person. My destination is people, not a physical geographical waypoint. But even, even lay that aside, even the physical landscape, we don't know it the way we may have three or four years ago in this very concrete, very tactile way. Um, because we're relying on, on you know, navigational tools that doesn't make it necessary anymore. We don't have to memorize you know, directions the way we used to. So geography is absolutely vital uh, to this project simply because this is a journey story and because geographies like stories have beginnings, middles and endings. You know, I would argue that a story is a map they're maps of us as people and how we, we are located in the geographical context of the world. As you describe very vividly, you encounter people and communities living not only in vastly different living conditions, but also very different lifestyles like nomadic lifestyle in small villages and mega cities, farmers, uh, shepherds probably, and fishermen. I know that you were a fisherman at some point. How do these lifestyles shape perspectives, outlooks, behaviors? I think very profoundly. One of the things that I've discovered in, a, in, in my, my job as a, as a reporter, as a journalist, as a storyteller, is that a lot of human identity is shaped around what we call work. And we, 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 we pour 
the geography of who we are, if you will, of our identity into what we do, whether we are farmers or whether we are um, rocket scientists. And I've walked with both on this, on this uh, project. And therefore, getting access to people's minds and hearts, uh, the, the doorway that is often the most convenient and most obvious, and in sometimes most profound, is by observing people at work. And when possible, even joining them at work. If I'm passing through, say, Northern India during um, a millet harvest, I will do everything I can to join um, the people out collecting, scything down the millet. Um, and it's a way to get, when, when people find that you're interested in what they do as work, which, which seems so banal and so ordinary and literally work a day, um, they really warm up. They become experts at their own lives. In a BBC interview, you said, we won't heal until everyone heals. Our safety is communal. And indeed, every major decision, every major challenge that we face as a society is global and interconnected. And decisions made by institutions and governments have global implications. And of course, we're living in this pandemic. That is a very stark example of this interconnectivity. And what happens in one city can very quickly and did engulf the rest of the world. From your perspective, what is the implication of this level of interdependence on decision-making? One story that early on comes to mind that, that makes these connections across hemispheres, across time, seven or eight years ago, one of the big headlines of the day was the Somali piracy story. The Somali pirates were going out in little skiffs from a, a non-functioning country, Somalia, to prey on shipping going through the Gulf of Aden, through the, the, the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, one of these bottlenecks of, of, of maritime commerce that squeezes ships through a very small, tight geographical space. And so the ships were basically easy, easy picking because they had to go through there and there's not much you can do to, to you know, protect yourself. And what I learned walking through the Rift Valley, I was hearing about Somali piracy from the very beginning. I was hundreds of kilometers inland in a, in a desert, but, you know, stories and rumors and radio, et cetera, were communicating this, this, this issue, this problem. And what I learned is that because the pirates were chasing away shipping and causing security headaches, some of the boats that they had scared away were maritime research vessels. The oceanographic research ships that, that gathered oceanographic data that was vital to drawing up accurate weather maps that would then be important in informing the formulas, the very complicated formulas that, that allow meteorologists to, to predict weather. And so one of the, one of the kind of um, knock-on effects of these young kids with the Kalashnikovs going out to, to you know, grab their share of the global wealth, as it were, um, in, in the coast, on the coast of Africa was that weather predictions for monsoons had started to degrade in quality in India um, because these data points were connected. And that affected farming in the Punjab, right? The, one of the breadbaskets of the subcontinent. So that for me, and I wrote about this as a story of kind of saying, see how these things are connected and you would never imagine it. 
um, you know, whether it's connected to a 19 year old Somali kid who has no education and no prospects in a, in a country that hasn't functioned for more than 20 years, that's tied together to how much props are being raised in India to feed people. And that's what this walk is really good at doing. You have to slow down to see them and talk to people and then connect not just A to B, but A to Z um, to understand how interconnected we are. Do you find that people living around the borders or the boundaries, first of all, are they, do they feel arbitrary borders and boundaries or not? And do those people living in those areas are more or less tribal or xenophobic? The, you know, the biggest, most powerful borders are the corrugations of our brain. And, uh, we'll, you know, we, can, we don't have to be anywhere near a physical, political, geographical border to be affected by those edges of our lives where we think the, our interests end and the interests of others begin. Borders are real tests. I think they're, they're really good mirrors of, of societies. You can go to Washington, D.C. And, and look at all the, you know, monuments and all these vast, um, you know, open squares and all the amazing architecture and all these symbols of national power and, and, and whatnot. But you have to go to the edges of societies to really get penetrating insights, I think, into how that society really functions, how it treats the neighbor. Is there a fence? Is there a wall? Is there a moat? Are the people who control the border wearing a uniform or not? How do they treat the, the other coming to the border? You can make a lot of pretty insightful um, observations about societies by, by crossing their borders. Author John Green, uh, in his new book about the human-dominated era we're living in, uh, the so-called Anthropocene age, talks about wanting to fall in love with the world again. He says, it's easy to forget how wondrous humans can be, that we're never far from wonders. I wonder if you share the sentiment, having met so many people. You do say that, I quote you, I would be dead without the mercy of strangers. So tell me about that. Years before I started on this walk, I, I was a conflict reporter, a war correspondent. I've covered every war in Africa for about nine years. I covered the Balkan Wars in the former Yugoslavia. I covered the war in Afghanistan, the American wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Um, so I have seen just how cruel we can be and how cruel we are to each other. I have no illusions about that. But I would not be able to wake up every morning on, an, on the trail, whether it's in China or you know, in, in, in Uzbekistan or in Turkey and, and have a cup of chai and, and lace up my boots and, and keep going for another day if I didn't believe that we also are a species of tremendous goodness. We have this capacity for positive change. We have the ability for empathy. We have compassion. It's just sometimes we don't access it, but it's there. Those muscles are there. What keeps me going is that reality, is the goodness of people. A recurring lesson for me as I walk through communities that are faced with many, many different kinds of challenges is that they're, you know, the leaders who are affecting positive change have that quality. They're both flexible, but they have kind of a moral core. They have a body of principles that, that they base themselves on that are really solid and, and not flexible. 
finding that sweet zone, that having an, having a titanium backbone, but one that moves with changing times. I grew up in, in central Mexico. They have a saying which says, uh, Ponte Trucha, uh, be like a trout. And you know how trouts are like, like almost anxiously alert. You see them pivoting in the water. They're, they're darting here and there. They're kind of, they have 360 degree situational awareness because of the, the neurons on their skins. They're kind of taking in um, dangers. Um, be, be open-eyed, um, have no illusions about sort of the darker sides of the human heart but also don't get so obsessed and absorbed in them that they warp you into uh, living a life that's paralyzed by fear. Um, when I talk to school kids often, I make that point because one of the top two, three, four questions is, isn't it dangerous what you're doing? Right? Isn't it dangerous to be walking across the world? And I have to remind them, that, as you just pointed out, is that I would not have gotten past my first uh, campsite in Ethiopia had I not relied on the kindness of strangers, on the goodness of people who had no interest, no, they, had, they got nothing out of helping me. In fact, I, I'm a burden, right, to them. I'm another mouth to feed. I'm a, I'm, I'm a pain in the butt because I need guidance. I need directions about where to go. I'm asking for knowledge um, always. But out of just a sense of solidarity, of being in the human condition, um, they help day in and day out they help and every day i wake up that's a big yes keep going paul a fascinating conversation thank you so very much thank you it's been a pleasure thank you for listening to the esri and the science of wear podcast and thanks to paul salopek for explaining how geographic knowledge enriches the story of humanity and progress in the modern world if you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate Esri and the Science of Wear podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about how modern location intelligence enables transformation, sustainability, and growth, visit esri.com forward slash location intelligence.